Hot hors d'oeuvre is the topic today. That can be almost anything, but of course, Escoffier is going to raise the bar so everything is bite-sized or put into a pastry cup or fried. Well, that's good. The variety of stuff in those cups is nearly endless, but the manner in which it is presented is easier to manage. We just need some baking skills and a change of direction for maximizing flavor, and we're all set. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 210, Food and Freedom, once a week for life. Hello, folks. You know, I still don't have the rest of this part figured out yet. My muses haven't spoken to me. I'm not entirely sure where they are. So while they're doing what it is they're doing, I'm waiting for some inspiration. Hot d'oeuvre is on the menu today. Yeah, see what I did there? Escoffier is, at times, interesting in his opinion of certain kinds of dishes. He's not much of a fan for hors d'oeuvre, but sees them as representing a tradition that is worth keeping. When it comes to various kinds of cooking, however, he'll have strong opinions about those, but mostly in the need for them and the perfection of that skill. I'm going to read a bit of his introduction to the hot hors d'oeuvre section to make the case. Quote, nowadays, there is an unfortunate tendency to exaggerate the amount and importance of hot hors d'oeuvre. It is too easily forgotten that the essential characteristics of these preparations is their lightness and delicacy. From the point of view of gastronomic logic, they can be deemed superfluous, and nothing except custom justifies their use. They should therefore be regarded as a kind of intermediate dish and should be something small and dainty which can titillate the palate of the guest without satisfying his appetite. If bouchers are taken as a good example of the more popular type of hot hors d'oeuvre, the term can clearly and definitely indicate the ideal size for all hot hors d'oeuvre. In the following list of hot hors d'oeuvre, care must be taken Pardon me, care has been taken to denote all those types generally used without indicating all the varieties derived from them. Actually, a large number of the recipes are such that they can be slightly modified so as to lead to a new series of dishes. This depends on the ability of the cook to see their possibilities and practical application according to his according to his ideas and resources, end quote. The TLDR is they aren't necessary, but if you're going to do them, do them well and see the immense possibilities they offer. Home cooks of today are faced with a few restrictions that Escoffier may not have had, and those include ingredient availability and access, and labor and space. In all cases, in my opinion, a well-prepared item is superior to presentation every time. In that portion I read, he mentioned bouges. That's a good place to start. It kind of sounds like a Adam Sandler movie, but it's not. Bouges are a bread 
Uh, it could be a brioche a tete without sugar, hollowed out, uh, or pot de choux, or small puff pastry cups into which various ingredients are placed for one or two bite-sized portions. Now that gets us to the making part and the baking skills. Brioche tete are the small brioche buns with the fluted edge and the small round piece of bread on top that resembles a head. Tete means head. Those are pretty challenging for the new baker and the old baker to keep the head in the center. Padachou has a variety of uses in the kitchen, including cream puffs for dessert. Think Saunders for you in Detroit, lucky enough to remember what those things were. Uh, and the last item I mentioned was puff pastry. Puff pastry isn't hard to make, but it does require a skill and knowledge level, so frozen commercial puff pastry might be useful. It certainly will be faster. To those potashu puffs. Potashu is a it's pretty easy. Well, it is a pastry dough. It's pretty easy to make. It requires well, it's easier with a with the mixture. It doesn't require one, but it is easier. And it as a Vehicle, it can be lots of things. It can actually be a kind of gnocchi, but baked, it becomes uh, what it, it becomes hollow inside. Hollow. The bigger ones would be cream puffs. Think of Saunders. Small ones are uh, profiteroles. If you put ice cream into them, or just hors d'oeuvre, either hot or cold, you can put uh, for the cold side. You can put. Um, well, smoked salmon mousse or chicken liver mousse or um, I just a variety of cheese spreads. There's just a ton of things you can add to them. Hot hors d'oeuvre, you can add. We're going to get to what that term is called. We can also use them for little cups for that. However, their use also includes making a croquembouche, which is going to be coming up around Christmas time, which is those little... They're the same small profiterole slash hors d'oeuvre sized puffs, not opened, dipped in caramel, then placed on a device that's going to make like a tower. It looks like a giant, well, it looks like a puff, it looks like a pot of shoe tree. It's really quite a thing to see, quite a thing to make. Uh, and if you're lucky enough to get to eat one, well, it's quite enjoyable. I would encourage you to learn to make that, and also would encourage you to learn to make puff pastry. You will need patience, a proper rolling pin, a fair amount of counter space, room in the cooler for the dough to rest between rolls, and plenty of time. And patience. Yes, I said that twice. There are a variety of recipes for puff pastry, but there are two main kinds, blitz or fast and traditional. Traditional is best for dessert uses such as Napoleon's or any other place you would want to have a puff pastry that splits its layers easily. Blitz is good for desserts such as a tartartan or for cheese straw appetizers or for brie wrapped in puff pastry for a nice little centerpiece for a party. It might work for bouchers. One risk is uneven rising during baking because of the nature of blitz versus traditional. 
cups of pastry for stuff is a good place to discuss the second phrase Escoffier uses in a lot of his hot hors d'oeuvre recipes. Salpicon, S-A-L-P-I-C-O-N. Most likely you've not heard that word before, you probably haven't read it. Salpicon shows up in various cooking styles, including Spanish, and in most cases means chopped ingredients bound with a thick sauce. In classical French, it means a fussy amount of attention paid to uniformly cutting all the ingredients to the same size, then binding them with a thick sauce. The point of the small size is so everything fits into the small boucher. The point of the uniformity is I appeal for consistency and uniformity, and also, to some degree, better distribution of the items. Another service vessel of pastry is called the barquette. Now, this is a different kind of pastry dough than the potichu, and it is made rolled. It's similar to pie dough. It's, it's a dough, roll-out roll out dough. They're made in by baking them in steel metal molds, small metal molds. Of course, they're steel, they're metal. They can be up to five inches, inches long, but generally they're an inch and a half to two inches, and they really do look like a little canoe or a little kayak. They're flat on the bottom and have tapered out edge. For one barquette pastry, you need two barquette molds. Pastry is rolled, cut, placed on the bottom of one of the molds, and the other mold is placed on top of that. So you, the pastry is between the two molds. Generally, they're baked upside down to help reduce shrinkage, and then cooled, and then the pastry is removed. It can be a tedious process. Tartlets are the same as barquettes, except they're completely different. Same dough, but a different shape. Tartlets are round. Usually they're fluted because that's pleasing to the eye, but not always. Um, and then, depending on the molds you have, barquette molds easily fit one into the other with the pastry inside and can be baked upside down with hardly a problem. Tartlet molds don't have that same consistency. So brand to brand, item to item, just one may not fit into the other nicely. It might actually be so tight that it cuts the pastry. Uh, if that's the case, then do like you do for a, do like you do, do like you do, for a pie shell that you blind bake. That's where you cook the pie shell with the piece of parchment paper and some kind of pie beans in there. Uh, you go to blind bake these little tartlet shells, which is a bit more of effort, but it can be done. Um, in that case, take first uh, once the dough is in the little pan, use the tip of a fork, tines of a fork, to dock the dough. That means you're poking holes in the dough so that it helps. It doesn't sound like it would work, but those little holes are interrupting the long lines of gluten that have been made as this dough has been made and then rolled and cut and put into this into this uh, tin. So docking the dough helps alleviate some of the risk of bubbles, big bubbles forming. The other thing that we're doing is we're putting the little piece of parchment paper, crumple it up so that it's easier to shape inside the tart 
pastry lined tartlet pan, and then pie beans or dried beans uh, are common to use, I use rice. The reason I use rice is it doesn't smell after you use it for after a while. Now, if you use black beans or white beans, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem, at least that I've discovered, is they start to smell. And you don't have to throw them away, so literally they can last a year, except they stink. The rice doesn't stink. Those little aluminum, um, I think they actually literally call them pie beans, or they sell a long chain. Buy it if you want, but I think it's a waste of money. You can buy a lot of bags of rice for the same price. Now, with those tartlet shells, the same thing we're going for, we want that baked completely because it's not going to get baked again. And we have this shrink issue. Uh, since we're, So it's a bit of a challenge. It can still work. When... When, when making either the puff pastry, and I'll go through the process of making something called the vulavon, or through the process of making a short dough, or sometimes it's called, uh, in Escafia he calls it short paste, sometimes it's called pot brise. Uh, in some cases you can use a pie dough. Um, they're all, the, fundamentally they work the same, and the key is to not overwork the dough. Now, the biggest problem with not overworking dough is no red light comes on and says, well, you've, you've reached your limit. The only way you know is when you bake the thing, and what happens is the pastry won't, the puff pastry won't rise properly. Uh, one side will push up, another side will pull down, so it looks very uneven in its rise. Uh, pie dough or pie brise will shrink a lot or a little depending on how overworked the dough is. These are things that just take practice to learn how not to do when, so that's, well, it's a practice thing. Now, I mentioned earlier that you could use commercial puff pastry. Uh, I think I've seen in the grocer's freezer already baked puff pastry for, for hors d'oeuvres. There's nothing in them. They're just this frozen pastry, already baked. Um, they're called Vulavons, V-O-L-A-U-V-E-N-T. It doesn't look like Vons. It looks like Vents. You can make them. Possibly you can buy them. But if you're using frozen puff pastry sheets, there's a risk that that also was overworked, and you won't know until you bake it. Uh, that has also happened around Thanksgiving and Christmas time for people who buy the convenience of frozen, already formed pie shells, or they buy the rolls, the pie dough in the box and take it home. You have no way of knowing how well or how poorly that dough was made, and you'll find out when you bake it. <laughs> and you may find new curse words, but that's another show. Not the curse words part. Since these pastry containers are small-ish, the need for small and uniform cut of mixture of ingredients becomes plain. Too big and they look sloppy, they won't fit, uh, and there's a risk that it's not easy and delicate and dainty to eat. 
Remember I mentioned that the professional kitchen has space and items on hand. In nearly any case, hot hors d'oeuvre at home will take more than a bit of planning. It'll take a lot of bit of planning. Escoffier would have on hand a variety of sauces as binders for any of the very many salpicone mixtures that might be being made on any given day. One way the home cook can make this job easier is plan some menu items ahead of time to make sure there's something to use for hors d'oeuvre. For instance, you can make a nice cheese sauce for cauliflower. Make a little extra, save some of that back for a binder for a nice hors d'oeuvre. Or work the other way around and save sauce from hors d'oeuvre to use tomorrow at dinner. Sauce bechamel, which is basically roux thickened milk flavored with uh, onion, bay leaf, and clove. Or sauce velouté, which is stock, roux thickened stock, which can or cannot be finished with cream. Are two, probably the easiest sauces to make and have on hand for hors d'oeuvre when, when season's coming. So, uh, Or, you know, maybe you like living fancy. I would do that. One possibility is to make beef stock, which requires time but not really very much effort from you, and then reduce that to a well-thickened stock. It becomes, it's called the gloss de viande if it goes really far. It's called a glaze. And then freeze it in ice cube trays. So let's say you've made a, we end up with a gallon of strained beef stock, and it tastes beefy. Reduce that to at least a quart, and with some some urgency to the boil, not full rolling boil, but a pretty good pretty good brisk pace. Get that water out of there. What's going to happen? Two things at least. We're going to have three. Three things are going to happen. You saw Mighty Python. Um, the flavor will concentrate tremendously. The water is going to eliminate, and those two things work together, and the viscosity is going to increase. You're going to see what looks fundamentally like water with the same viscosity and sloshiness turn into, even at the hot state, something with some viscosity. The bubbles will change, the boiling part will change, it will change its pitch and its boil, and it will become, it will raise in temperature, so be careful. Check the flavor. But reducing it by three quarters is a really good place to start. Put it in ice cream trays, freeze it. Now those cubes of stock, glaze, can be easily thawed on the stovetop to make a nice binder for a very meaty or a very roasted vegetable or maybe herbs and cheese, depending on what's there. Car oh, caramelized onions and some gruyere. <laughs> yeah, that's what you want to make. That's good. Yeah, so now you have something to bind your salpicon with to go into your little, little, uh, little boats. So we got this far, we're working on developing flavor. Flavor is one important aspect in these small bites. Now I've talked a lot about getting flavor into dishes by pushing the limits of caramelization when you're cooking, but this is a different skill. With this small sized dish, the little tiny pieces of fish or shrimp or chicken or lobster or pheasant, we need to get flavor in there a different way because we're not going to caramelize that. It'll burn. One of the ways we do that is with lots of fresh herbs. One of the other ways we do that is with flavored butters. 
And the third way we've already covered is that thick sauce, because that's very, very potent, very rich. Compound butters are great tools to deliver fat, which is flavor, and the supplementary or complementary flavor. So let's invent a chicken and pearl onion hors d'oeuvre. And this is the place to use leftovers. So you have, say you have either poached chicken or roast chicken, or it could even be fried chicken. Take the breading part off. Um, cut the pieces of chicken into really nice small dice. Uh, add some well-poached, or no, 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 better yet, lightly caramelized pearl onions with some fresh rosemary and... Mm, savory or marjoram if you've got that fresh, not dry. And then a little bit of uh, sauce bechamel for that would be a really good way to start for a chicken uh, or hors d'oeuvre. Now while that sauce is still warm and you've mixed the salpicone together, and it really won't take much sauce depending on how much mix you have, add a little bit of roasted garlic compound butter to that and the heat's going to melt the butter, which is going to bring silkiness. It's going, to, it's going to bring flavor, but it's going to add a level of silkiness to the whole salpicone that you can't get any other way. And it's going to add an intense amount of flavor. So every bite where dinner meals really is sort of the slow accumulation of various bites of things. So let's say you have a starch potato, a starch of edge and, and main course. We love glazed carrots and mashed potatoes. And they're all fine. Every bite you have is a little bit different from the one before that. But by the time you're done, you go, wow, man, that was just a really satisfying dinner. And maybe you had a nice sauce to go on the, on the potatoes or on the meat or on both. Well, that same finished feeling of, wow, this was great. We need to do that, but not in 90 bites, in two. The way we do that is really up the flavor. So at the end of that second bite, the person, oh my goodness, how do they do that? This is incredible. I need nine more of these. Well, that's how you do that. Now, we talked about two things that are the same but not, which was the barquettes and the tarlets. There is another distinction between things that appear mostly the same. Brochettes and etero. Now, I'm not entirely certain I have pronounced etero correctly, but I'm going to continue to pronounce it that way, right or wrong. Both are various, various ingredients arranged on a skewer. That's the similar part. A key difference is the cooking. Atero are fried and brochettes are grilled. Atero begin with wooden skewers, which are then removed and are replaced with fancy metal skewers with, with pretty little designed top grippy things and then served standing up in something. Uh, brochettes are just served in, uh, well, we're going to cover that in one second. Uh, sometimes you may see a whole goose or turkey or duck or pheasant or well, not quail, but too, too puny with a with skewers of stuff stuck inside them. That's at a row. It, a quick review of the process 
from making and frying atarot reveals why nearly no one makes them. There is a fussy level of 12 that makes them just too much for most places to do. And certainly the replacing the skewer while it's still hot and fried and you can't break it part doesn't change the frustration level. For brochettes, which can be anything at all as long as the items are mostly uniform, Escoffier offers this, quote, Brochettes are always comprised of one, a principal ingredient which can be, for example, calves, pigs, or lamb's liver, chicken livers, or veal or lamb's sweetbreads, and two, a subsidiary item such as slices of cooked mushrooms and squares of lean bacon or ham. While the main ingredient, when the main ingredient is liver, it should be sliced and sautéed in butter, end quote. Pardon me for the verbal screw-up there. From there, the brochette ingredients are individually rolled in a duxelle, which is finely chopped and well-cooked mushroom paste. Then they're skewered. Then they're sprinkled with breadcrumbs. And then grilled on a moderate heat grill, moderately hot grill to heat the cooked items throughout. Everything on a brochette is already cooked. It just needs to be made hot. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, hang on a minute, I've got a medium hot or moderately hot grill and a wooden skewer, I see a problem with physics here. You are correct. So one of the reasons uh, people like to use really long rosemary sticks with the rosemary end attached for brochettes is A, they smell kind of good. It's easy to knock the burnt pot off. They also impart a good flavor to the thing, but they do sort of burn less than bamboo skewers, which <laughs> burn really well. Uh, so a brochette finished is served on half-melted maidity butter. Now, that's kind of a lot to take in in one sitting or one listening. We've covered a lot of stuff and haven't even really gotten to what do you do with these cups. And I haven't told you how to make a boulevard. So let's take one of those pieces of commercial puff pastry. I'm going to well, this is one of those baker's contradictions, lightly but well flour your, your countertop and roll it just a little bit. Mostly we want to roll commercial pastry to just even it out because we don't know what's in there and just give it some uniformity. And for a, uh, let's, let's make this medium big for an hors d'oeuvre and use a two inch fluted round cutter, which will serve as the base. And then we're gonna cut, we're gonna cut three rounds out altogether for one voulevon. And the first one's gonna be just the base. Then of the other two, we're going to use a smaller, maybe an inch and three quarters, inch and a half sized cutter, straight cutter, regular edge is fine. And you're going to cut the hole out. So now we have one base, whole piece, and then two little puff pastry donuts. We're going to lightly egg wash the top only of the base and place and try to line up the flutes if you can. It's not critical, but it does look nice. Place Gently place one of the little puff pastry donuts on top of the base. Very gently egg wash the top only. 
of that little puff pastry donut and then add the second one and then gently egg wash the top of it and let that rest until you make some more. So the fussiness of egg washing uh, has a particular reason. The first reason for egg washing at all is to act as glue to hold these pieces of pastry together so when they go in the oven they grow into one big thing. The challenge is if the egg wash which is mostly protein, gets on the edge of the vulavon, what's going to happen? That egg is going to cook before the pastry can rise. And that's going to act as a restraint against the pastry. So in that one spot, it's not going to rise much at all compared to around it. It's going to rise more. So it's going to, it's going to be off. It won't look uniform and done well. These things will rise up and be... Basically, it's like a little puff, it's a puff pastry cup. You can bake those, uh, the, the holes from our puff pastry donut holes, you can bake those and those can act as lids for your vulavon, depending on the filling that's inside. But personally, I like seeing what's inside because generally there's a color difference and there's herbs and there's pretty and so seeing it all looks nice. It's a good aesthetic, but there's no reason not to use them. You can also uh, make them, butter, um, butter or egg wash them, sprinkle them with sugar, bake them, and now you have little treats. <laughs> I don't encourage you any sugar, but I will tell you that they are kind of addictive. Um, so one thing that's important to know about, well, all of our cups, the, the pot de choux, little profiteroles, our puffs, the puff pastry, and the barquettes. They're all dough. Even though they're cooked, they're still flour-based, which means they aren't waterproof. In particular, the vulavons are the least waterproof because they have all those layers exposed and a slightly juicy mixture is going to seep out fairly quickly and... It doesn't. It turns from finger food into mess food fairly fast. So the need for a minimum amount of binding sauce for your salpicone becomes fairly obvious. Make sure you have plates and lots of napkins and don't let Aunt Sally drip down her nice dress. There is a trick you can use, which applies also for bakers in making uh, kinds of pies that are blind baked first. And then the filling is, say, making like a chocolate mousse pie or something that doesn't get baked once the filling goes into the pie. All that happens is refrigerated. The trick to that is, so these barquettes with this pie shell, I'm going to stick to barquettes. You've, you've already baked your barquettes. They're cooled. They're ready to go. A, take an egg white and whip it a few times to break down the protein so it's easier to, to paint with. And you're going to brush the inside of the barquette with a light layer of egg whites. Bake that again for about five minutes so that the egg white is completely cooked. And it's, it, we're, we're using what caused us a problem on the puff pastry to be an advantage in the barquette. It's not going to be a waterproof seal, but it's going to help a little bit hold the moisture in and also help keep the pastry nice and crunchy, which is one of the things we want from a well-rolled and well-baked barquette is we want the crunch, 
I'm not really interested in flavor from that. It's going to have a little flavor because it's browned flour, so it's got a caramel flavor. But really, the thing inside is the thing that's meant to shine. Now, the this is all hard enough as it is. I worked with a, a master chef in Tallahassee who pushed the level even further, which was to roll the dough as thin as possible to still have it stand up to stuff inside and transport from the cook's sheet pan to the serviceware and the serviceware to the plate and the plate to the, to the guest's mouth. It's a lot of travel. Um, pastry dough that's rolled too thick, a couple problems with that. One is it's, it's crumbly and clunky and becomes obtrusive as a flavor and a thing in your mouth that's getting in the way of the salpicone, but it's also becoming clunky to carry, clunky to eat. It's too much. It's just too much. And it's harder to bake completely because it's too thick. So, roll it thin enough. How thin is thin enough? I cannot answer that question. I don't know. But, generally an eighth of an inch is a good place to start, maybe a little bit more. Now, one of the things that any hors d'oeuvre cook will tell you is for everyone you need, make two. Because they are delicate. And they break easily, and eventually you just, you, people make mistakes, people come by and eat them, all kinds of weird things happen. So, if you need 20, make 40. I know that sounds incredible, but uh, better safe than sorry. Uh, I do want to stop here. I am going to stop here. There is more to cover. In, in the next episode, I want to get into croquettes, which, well, they can be fun. They can also be a ginormous pain in the tuchus, but they can be fun, especially if you make with mashed potatoes. Um, and they are fantastically fun to eat, and they're a great way to use up leftovers. Uh, also something called timbles and crustades. Um, there's a beignets, which is kind of a donut, but also maybe not really. You're kind of like a fritter. It's it gets it gets funny. Um, one of the things I haven't talked about, and 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 maybe I need to do an episode on pate, because that's there's 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 ways to do that. There's easy pates, and there's uh, Still easy, but technically challenging. It doesn't. I know that doesn't make sense, really. But um, the the labor part's simple. The technical knowledge is a bit more tricky than just a simple mousseline. But uh, that's that. That might be a, a, a an extra episode in this because he doesn't really, oddly enough, doesn't really cover pâtés too much. Now, as I said that, I'm going to have to double check and make sure that I didn't just put my foot in my mouth. I'm not doing that now, but um, I think I am mostly right on that. So, that's going to be part two for another time. Uh, this show is 210, and I will put on the show notes page... Now remember, it's still the culinarylibertarian.com 
blog still is active. I've only changed the name of the podcast, but all of the show notes pages will be as they were before. So this one will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 211. No, it won't 210. culinarylibertarian.com slash 210. 211's next week. Um, and with that, that's going to do it. Escoffier does use a lot of cheese, either as fairly big chunks in those atero or in sauces or uh, even things that wouldn't necessarily be his, like cheese boards or um, charcuterie. You can find amazing cheeses at DeBruner Brothers in Philadelphia, and you don't even have to go there. You can click the link on the show notes page and shopping at DeBruno Brothers websites like walking into Salumeria from your desk. It's not just cheese. It's, man, it's everything. It's, <laughs> it's fun. So use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash cheese, or click the link on the show notes page. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you listening. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. There is no chef's table portion for this episode, but there is one next week, and that's a good one. You can join the Patreon supporters by becoming a subscriber at culinarylibertarian.com support. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon.